Well, hey everybody, it's Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to this week's sermon podcast. This week is Holy Week, so in our sermon, we're going to be thinking about Jesus's crucifixion, but we're going to be thinking about it in the broader context of what we've been talking about over the last several weeks during our sermons at Melbourne Heights. We're going to be thinking about the pain and suffering that Jesus experiences on the cross and what we can learn from it to help us deal with the pain and suffering that we experience in our lives. So let's get right into this week's sermon. Wrestling with a problem that has no easy answers. Over the last few weeks we have been wrestling with the problem of pain and suffering in our world and in our lives. And we've been wrestling with these problems of pain and suffering because every one of us has had to deal with pain and suffering in our lives. We've all had to attend the funeral of someone that we love. We've all had to Watch as a family member or a friend has suffered in a hospital bed. We have all stubbed our toes. We have all bit our tongues. We have all twisted an ankle. We've all had to deal with pain in our lives. So we all need to know how we can face, how we can deal with this pain that we experience in our lives. And over the last couple of weeks, that's what we've spent our time together thinking about, how we can deal with the problem of pain and suffering in our lives. So a couple of weeks ago, while I was gone on vacation and we had Amy Butler up on the screen, she talked about one of the things that we can do to deal with the problem of pain and suffering in our lives when she talked about our need to have other people that are there who can carry us through even when we're struggling for ourselves. And last week we spent our time together talking about one of the ways that Jesus shows us how we can face pain and suffering in our lives when he is dying on the cross and he calls out to God in a prayer of lament. And last week we talked about the fact that a lament is a real prayer where you express what you're really feeling about the situation that you're experiencing and going through. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been taking a closer look at how Jesus, who is God-made human, dealt with the pain and the suffering that he experienced on this earth, especially during his crucifixion, to help us as we try to figure out how we can respond to the pain and suffering that we have in our lives. But this morning, before we go deeper into thinking about how Jesus responded to the pain and the suffering that he experienced on the cross, I think that it's important for us to stop and to talk about the actual pain that Jesus experienced on the cross. We need to stop this morning and we need to think about the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross because if we're being completely honest this morning, if we're being completely honest, we have to admit that in our lives, we've done a pretty good job of sterilizing the cross. We've done a good job of sterilizing and sanitizing the cross and making it something that the cross is not. We have sterilized the cross and we have made it into a shiny little symbol that we stick on top of our buildings and call it a steeple so that people will know when they're driving by the street that they have passed by a church. We've turned the cross and we've made it into a little gold or silver trinket that we wear around our necks so that other people will see it and they'll automatically think that we're good people. We've taken the cross and we've made it into a marketing tool that we slap on our websites and bumper stickers so that people will implicitly trust us even if we're not trustworthy. And yeah, I wish I made that last one myself, but I didn't. It actually exists. Somebody advertising 
simply with a cross, saying that they're a good and trustworthy person. So this morning, we need to take a little bit of time and we need to de-sterilize our perception of the cross. So I have one more picture that I'm going to show you this morning. One more picture to, to start erasing some of these sterilizations and these misconceptions that we have about the cross. And the picture that I'm going to show you comes from the 2004 movie, The Passion of the Christ. And even though the Passion of the Christ is an artistic rendering of what Jesus' crucifixion may have been like, I guarantee you it's a whole lot more accurate than the, the pristine steeples we put on top of our buildings or the silver and gold pendants we wear around our necks. So let's go ahead and put up that picture now. Skip ahead a little bit. There we go. Now we put this image in black and white to make it a little less offensive for us. But just by looking at this picture, you can tell that the cross wasn't a pretty thing. Just by looking at this picture, you can tell that the cross wasn't elegant. Just by looking at this picture, you can tell that the cross was bloody. You can tell that the cross was brutal. You can tell that the cross was nothing but painful. So make no mistake this morning. The cross is more than just a pristine thing we stick on top of our church buildings, or something pretty and gold and shiny that we wear around our necks. The cross was an implement of mass execution, used throughout the Roman Empire for 800 years. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, were killed on a cross. As a matter of fact, during Israel's final failed attempt to overthrow the Roman government in and around 70 AD, it said that so many people were crucified in and around the city of Jerusalem that there wasn't any wood left to make another cross. Now think about that for a second. Let that sink in for just a minute. At one point, Rome crucified so many people in the city of Jerusalem that they ran out of wood. So there's no doubt. There's no doubt that crucifixion was Rome's preferred method of capital punishment. But what was it about the cross that made it Rome's preferred method of execution? Well, it's said that the Roman emperor, Tiberius, who just happened to be the emperor of Rome when Jesus was crucified, that he preferred crucifixion because it prolonged the victim's agony without granting them the relief of death. You see, Tiberius believed that death was an escape, that it was a reward. So in his mind, an execution wasn't really punishment. For an execution to be punishment, the victim had to suffer as much as they possibly could before they died. That's why Seneca, who was a Roman philosopher, who lived again at about the same time that Jesus did, said that if you knew there was a likelihood that you would be arrested and then crucified, you were better off to end your own life than to let Rome do it for you. And it's the reason why Josephus, who is the most well-known historian of that time frame, called crucifixion the most pitiable of deaths. Crucifixion was a horrible way to die. Crucifixion was a terrifying way to die. Crucifixion was an excruciatingly painful way to die. 
And Truman Davis, who's a medical doctor, who has studied the physical effects of the crucifixion, describes how the crucifixion would have inflicted so much pain on Jesus' body. He writes, As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps would sweep over his muscles, nodding Jesus' muscles into deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps would come the inability for a person to lift himself upward, hanging by his arms, his pectoral muscles, which are the muscles that connect your shoulders to your chest, are paralyzed. And the intercostal muscles, which are the muscles that run between your ribs, they're unable to act. Air can be drawn into your lungs, but they can't be, but it can't be exhaled. So Jesus is fighting to raise himself up with all of that pain running through his arms and his shoulders just to take in a short breath. But finally, carbon dioxide would build up in his lungs and in his bloodstream, and the cramps then would partially subside. Spasmatically, he'd be able to lift himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. But hours of this limitless pain, cycles of this twisting, joint-rending rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back while he's moving up and down the cross just to take in another breath. And then another agony would set in. A deep, crushing pain in his chest is the pericardium, which is the, the fluid membrane that encloses the heart, would start to slowly fill with the serum and begin to compress his heart. At that point, it's almost over. The loss of tissue fluid would have reached a critical level. The compressed heart would be struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into Jesus' tissues. His tortured lungs making frantic effort to gasp in even a small gulp of air. The markedly dehydrated tissue would send their flood of stimuli to his brain. Then ultimately fatigue, or the intense pain or muscle atrophy would set in and would render the victims of a crucifixion unable to lift their body up to take in another breath. And they would die from the lack of oxygen. That's the physical pain of the cross. That's the physical pain of the cross. But that's only part of the pain that Jesus would have experienced. If you remember the stories leading up to the crucifixion, you know that Jesus experiences a lot more pain than just what he feels physically while he is dying on the cross. He deals with the pain of having one of his closest followers betray him over into the hands of the religious leaders in the temple who wanted to see him killed. He experiences the pain of seeing all the rest of his disciples run and flee and abandon him when he needs them most. He experiences the pain of not only being tortured by the Roman soldiers who will hang him and kill him on the cross, but also the humiliation as they dress him up, prancing him around like he's a king that they mock with their praise and worship. So the pain that Jesus experienced around the cross isn't just a physical pain. It's an emotional pain, a psychological pain, a spiritual pain. And when you take all of this into consideration, it makes the very first thing that Jesus says when he is hanging on the cross, his very first response to the enormous amount of pain that he is suffering, it makes it almost unbelievable. 
If you'll go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 23, I want to show you what Jesus says. Luke chapter 23, and as you're finding it, let me just remind you that Luke is essentially a biography of Jesus' life. Inside of Luke, the book of Luke, we're going to find stories about Jesus' birth and his baptism. We're going to read stories about his ministry and his miracles. And in this passage, we're going to find one way that Jesus responds to the pain of the cross. Just one verse for you this morning. Luke chapter 23. We'll read the beginning of verse 34. Jesus said, remember, this is in the face of all of this pain, all of this suffering, all of this anguish that he's going to experience. And Luke 23, verse 34 says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. How could Jesus possibly say that? In the face of everything that he's experiencing, how could the first thing, his initial response to this pain and suffering of the cross, how could he ask God to forgive the people who were inflicting this pain upon him? Here Jesus is, being executed by the Roman government after he had been turned over to stand trial in front of his own people. And he asks God to forgive them. While Jesus is hanging on the cross, as his arms are starting to burn with fatigue, and those deep, painful, nodding cramps are setting into his arms, he asks God to forgive the people who put him there. While Jesus is struggling to lift himself up just so he could take in another breath, while his heart is working overtime just to keep the blood flowing through his body, Jesus asks God to forgive the people who put him there. After his closest friend, after his closest friends have either betrayed him or abandoned him, only hours before his death, Jesus asks God to forgive them. In the face of a pain that I don't even want to begin to attempt to imagine, Jesus' first response his initial response to his suffering is to forgive. But how is that possible? How can Jesus possibly forgive the government leaders that put him on the cross? How can Jesus possibly forgive the religious leaders that conspired to have him killed? How can Jesus possibly forgive the Roman soldiers that have just literally driven nails into his hands and into his feet? How can Jesus possibly forgive the crowd that is standing around his cross, mocking him and insulting him while he's hanging there? And how can Jesus possibly forgive his disciples for fleeing, for running away from him, for abandoning him when he needed them the most? Well, the answer to that question isn't easy. But it's an answer that we all need to hear. It's an answer that will help us when we experience one of the worst pains that this world has to offer to us. And that's the pain of of being intentionally uh, hurt or harmed by another person. Knowing how Jesus is able to forgive will help us do it too. And the reason why Jesus was able to ask God to forgive while he was dying on the cross is because Jesus never forgot that everyone who played a part in putting him onto that cross 
was a child of God. Jesus was able to forgive because he never forgot that we are all children of God. We are all children of God. The Roman governor Pilate, who sentenced Jesus to die, is a child of God. The religious leaders who plotted to have Jesus executed, they are children of God. The Roman soldiers who carried out the crucifixion are children of God. The crowd that mocked and humiliated Jesus during his time of anguish and misery are children of God. The disciples who abandoned Jesus when Jesus needed them the most are children of God. But let's be honest here. That's not the way that we like to think about people who have intentionally inflicted pain or suffering on other folks. We don't want to think of someone who has intentionally inflicted pain or suffering or harm onto someone else as a child of God. We have other words that we like to use for those people instead. And one of the words that we like to call people who intentionally harm another human being is we like to call them monsters. We like to call them monsters, and we like to call them monsters because we want to believe deep down that someone who can intentionally harm another human being is not like us. We want to believe that there has to be something deep down inside of that person that will make them commit these evil acts that we just don't have deep down inside of us. So instead of seeing them as a person or seeing them as a child of God, we want to see them as a monster, as someone other than human because of the wrongs that they commit. But here's the thing. When we want to see other people, even people who do horrendous and atrocious things, as other than us, we're wrong. We are wrong. And we actually have scientific research that backs this up. Back in the early 1960s, researchers at Yale University were attempting to understand how so many people participated in the atrocities of the Holocaust. So these researchers invited ordinary folks to come in off the streets and take part in a study. Participants came in, they were paid $4 an hour for their time, and for that hour that they would spend with with these researchers, they were asked to deliver electrical shocks to another person who was in another room whenever that person gave a wrong answer to a question that they were asked. And after each time that person gave a wrong answer, the voltage of the shocks were increased. Researchers wanted to see how much pain an ordinary person would inflict on someone else just because an authority figure told them to. Now, it's important to note that no one was actually shocked during this experiment, but the participants didn't know that because they couldn't see the person that they were administering the shocks to. All they could do was hear. They could hear the response and the reaction, the noises that the person made as these electrical shocks were delivered. Well, going into this study, the researchers believed the exact same thing that we want to believe. They, they believe the same thing that most of us want to believe, and that's that if someone is willing to intentionally inflict harm in another, that there has to be something wrong with them that isn't conveyed among the general population. So they thought that there would be a small percentage of people that would actually deliver lethal doses of these electrical shocks. Researchers at Yale University at the time, they guessed that it would be 1% of the people would have something deep down inside of them that would allow them to keep shocking another human being up to the point that they became 
lethal. But when the researchers actually conducted the experiment, they found not 1% of the people were willing to deliver lethal shocks. They found 65% of the participants were willing to deliver what they believed were lethal shocks. Two out of every three people were willing to end the life of another another person. Two out of three were persuaded to do extraordinarily and awful things. So whether we want to admit it or not, we all have this capacity deep down inside of us to hurt somebody else. We all have this capacity deep down inside of us to intentionally inflict pain and suffering on another person. But what Jesus remembered as he was dying on the cross was that actions don't define a person. Actions don't define a person. God defines a person. And God has already defined who all of us are. I want you to listen to just a couple of passages of Scripture where God tells us who we are to Him. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 4, God tells us, You are precious in my eyes. You are honored, and I love you. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, God says about us, I have loved you with a love that lasts forever. And in John 3.16, Jesus tells us, that God loved us so much that He sent His only Son into this world for us. There's nothing that we can do to change that. There is nothing that you can do to change how God feels about you. You are always going to be precious to God. God is always going to want to honor you. You are always going to be loved by God, and God will always be willing to give up His Son for you. And here's what Jesus remembered. So are the people who hurt you. The people who put Jesus on the cross, they were still loved by God. They were still precious to God. God had sent His Son into the world for them. And the people who hurt us are still precious to God and loved by God, too. They are still children of God, still loved by Him. So God forgives them, just like God forgives us. Because whether you realize it or not, you've done horrible things to God, too. But we're told inside of Scripture, when Paul writes a letter uh, to the church in the ancient city of Rome, Paul tells them that the beauty of God is that He was willing to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners doing these horrible things, God was willing to give His Son up to die for us. Because we are precious to Him. And He loves us. And if Jesus is able to forgive the people who put Him on the cross, we're supposed to be able to forgive the people who hurt us too. Now, listen to me now. Because forgiving someone doesn't mean that what they did is acceptable or excusable. What Pilate did wasn't acceptable and it wasn't excusable. What the religious leaders did wasn't acceptable and it wasn't excusable. What the Roman soldiers did wasn't acceptable or excusable. What the crowd gathered around Jesus or His very own disciples did wasn't acceptable 
or excusable. But when we forgive, we don't forgive the action, we forgive the person. And this is a big, important distinction to make. When we forgive, we are not forgiving the action, we are forgiving the person. Because forgiving an action means that what was done wasn't really harmful or painful to us. Forgiving an action means that what was done did not bring unnecessary pain or suffering into our lives. Forgiving an action means that everything is okay, but none of that's true. We all know that our actions have repercussions. And if someone has harmed you, forgiveness doesn't mean that everything is automatically made right and wiped away. But forgiving a person, forgiving a person means that you still understand that that person is a person. That person is still a child of God. Someone that is still loved by God. Even if you can't bring yourself to loving them again. But that doesn't mean that forgiveness is easy. It doesn't mean that forgiveness is easy, and that's why I still marvel. Still marvel at what Jesus does in an instant while he's dying on the cross. Forgiveness isn't easy. And this morning, I don't have any magic words that are going to make it any easier for you. I don't have a three-step formula that you can follow that's going to make it easier for you to forgive the next person that hurts you. But instead, I have a challenge for you. I have a challenge for you. Because if forgiveness requires that you remember that the person who just harmed you is a child of God, then what we need to do, what you need to do, is to try to see everyone as a child of God right now. Don't wait until you need to forgive someone to see that they are a child of God. Do it now. Do it before you need to forgive someone. So here's my challenge for you. Today, this week, Going forward, I want you to try to see everyone that you encounter as a child of God. To remind yourself that everyone you meet is a child of God. So do it while you're driving home today as you're passing by other cars or as they're passing you. Remind yourself that the other drivers on the road are children of God. I put that one in the sermon for me because I get angry when I'm on the road. I always say I'd be a better Christian if I didn't have to drive in traffic because I get mad. So I've already been working on this. I've already been working on this as people are slow in front of me or too fast behind me, saying they are a child of God, just like you. I want you to do it when you go out to eat after this morning's service wraps up. I want you to remind yourself that your waiter or your waitress, that they are children of God. That sure, they're going to make mistakes just like you make mistakes. They're not going to be perfect, but that doesn't compromise their value at all. They are still a child of God. Do it while you're out at the store this week. Remind yourself that the cashier, the girl that's bagging your groceries, that they are children of God. Do it when your kids or your grandkids, the next time that they're acting up and starting to wear on your nerves, take a step back and remind yourself that they're not just there to push your buttons. They are children of God. Do it tomorrow when you're standing in line at the post office mailing in your taxes. Remind yourself that all those other people in line are children of God as well, and those IRS agents, they're children of God too. Remind yourself that everyone you meet is a child of God. Everyone that you see 
is a child of God. And this isn't going to take away the pain and suffering that you experience in your life. This isn't a quick fix. It's not going to remedy everything. But the next time that you're experiencing pain and suffering that was brought on you by another person, whether they meant to do it, whether it was an accident, take that time to do what Jesus did for you. Take the time to do what Jesus did for you for them. Because God loved you so much that he sent his son into this world to lay down his life for you, to forgive you of every wrong that you have ever done and ever will do long before you knew that you were doing wrong and hurting him. God sent his son to lay down his life for you and to forgive you. So forgive others. Forgive others. And maybe, just maybe you'll find that it does help with the pain and suffering you've experienced in your life too. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the time that we've had over the last few weeks to think about the problem of pain and suffering in this world. God, we know that this is something that every one of us has experienced. Every one of us has felt real pain, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, in our lives. It doesn't get any easier. It doesn't get any easier. But God, our prayer is that you are helping each of us to learn how we can face that pain and how we can help other people as they face pain and suffering in their lives too. God, help us to rely on each other, to rely on our brothers and sisters sitting inside of this room to help us as we struggle with the pain and suffering in our lives. Help us to call out to you, to trust you with our real feelings about what we're enduring, what we're going through, turning them over to you, trusting that you were still God. Help us to forgive those that hurt us, remembering that you forgave us even when we have hurt you, and that all of us are your children who are precious to you, that you love with an everlasting love. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for listening to this week's sermon podcast. And I hope that this sermon hasn't just helped you think a little bit more about the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross, but I hope that it's challenged you to respond to the pain in your life the same way that Jesus responded to the pain in his life. And Jesus was able to forgive the people who put him on the cross because Jesus remembered that the people who put him on that cross, the people who inflicted the pain in his life, are all children of God. I hope that you'll always remember that, that everyone that you come in contact with is a child of God. Now, in our next sermon, we're going to be taking a trip into our archives, and we're going to be thinking a little bit more uh, about some of the events that happen after Jesus' crucifixion. So we hope that you'll join us next Tuesday when our next episode release releases. And I just want to remind you, like I always do, that if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, go ahead and do that. That way, when next Tuesday's episode drops, it gets sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. And while you're in your favorite podcasting app, let me encourage you to take just a second and leave us a review. Your review's 
reviews really do mean a lot to us, and they can help spread the word about this podcast and these messages to other people who need to hear them to help them grow in their faith as well. So I hope that you guys have a great Holy Week, that you have the chance to really reflect on what the season of Easter is all about, and we'll see you back here next Tuesday.